I'm going to lobby for a uh, a new microphone holder. I don't want to say too much bad about it, but this is pitiful. <laughs> I mean, you know, look at this. This is, and uh, yeah, this is. This is, this is not good. <laughs> so here's what you do. You know, when Abe or is preaching or Andy is preaching, you, you, if you say at the end, okay, that was a 7.5, you know, out of 10. You know, you, you say that you got to add another point because of this. You know, he was at a, it was he was handicapped. That was a handicap, but. Uh, so great to see you tonight I'm excited about what we're going to talk about and uh, really appreciate you guys and the good interest that you have have shown so what we're going to do tonight and again discussion type situation I'm really asking you some questions you're welcome of course to ask me questions and this is probably the one lesson where you'll have a lot of you you could have a lot of questions and I I don't want you not to ask, ask them uh, but what we want to do is learn how to see structure in a text. That may be sound intimidating to you, but I'm going to show you a whole bunch of examples of how to see this and what you should be looking for. And really a lot of this is just a matter of me opening a door for you so that you're aware of the presence of structure within a text. In other words, the, the idea is that it's, how God has revealed things is just as important as what he's revealed. Uh, You really get as much as 50% of God's message in a text from how he delivers it as you do from just the facts of what he says. God puts things together in a really artistic way. It's a painting for us. Uh, we've you've used the analogy of a jigsaw puzzle that brings about a beautiful picture. And God bringing about this picture uses a lot of different ways of getting that message across that goes beyond just words on a page. The Bible isn't an encyclopedia, right? It's not, uh, it's not just giving you answers. It's painting a picture of the mind of God and giving you the beauty of God. So how he reveals it, it's just as important as what he says, and you want to notice the how throughout the text. So we will, we will look at just some examples of this. If you open your Bible to Matthew chapter 1, Matthew chapter 1, and that, that first part in the first 17 verses that all of you spend so much time studying when you read through your Bible, that's, uh, that's the part that's really easy, right? <laughs> the, the genealogies. <laughs> okay, so the genealogy of Matthew 1, we look at that, and, the, and typically, <laughs> if you're like me, you kind of scan it and go, huh. And uh, like the lady said, in fact, the other night, she, she kind of look over that, and she says, I finally started looking at it more carefully and realizing how much was actually there. What Matthew does is he takes and divides uh, the genealogy into three great periods of, his, of Israel's history, history. And so you have, you have a, a as, he, as he summarizes there, you, you see in verse 17, 14 generations, 14 generations, and 14 generations. 
in order to get those three three sets of 14 generations, he actually has to count David twice. So it, it's just, you can see right off, well, there must be a reason for this symmetry if he's counting David twice. This isn't even a complete genealogy. He's manipulated it somehow so that he can create this exact symmetry that way. And what, what he's doing is, is there's a reminder first of the sin of Israel because you read these individuals and you recognize them and, and say, wow, that wasn't a good person, and yet he's in Jesus' genealogy. And you keep seeing things like that over and again, but you also see underlying that the mercy of God through all of those uh, years as well. And then it is interesting just to see how different this Jewish genealogy is. Jews did not put women in their genealogies. They certainly would not insert Gentiles in their genealogy. And yet here in Jesus' genealogy, there are both women and Gentiles that are placed within the genealogy. Let's, go, let's, let's look at the women, for example. Uh, when you look at the genealogy, who's the first woman that you, that you see in the genealogy? Spotter? Tamar. Tamar is the first woman in the genealogy. And uh, what, was, uh, what was Tamar's uh, nationality? No, not Moabite. Canaanite. She's, she's, that's right. She's a Canaanite. Uh, Tamar is a, is a Canaanite. Of course, the Canaanites are later cursed to extinction, and they're, they're very bad. So here's a Canaanite. Uh, Tamar, you might remember, marries the oldest son of Judah, Genesis chapter 38. And God uh, doesn't like him. He is very sinful, and so God just kills him. And uh, his name was Ur. And then his brother, Onan, is supposed to marry her and bring up children for the dead brother. And he refuses to impregnate her. And so God kills him too. And then that leaves the youngest, uh, the boy named Sheila, uh, or probably it was more like Shelah, or something like that. Uh, maybe the boy named Sue today. But, but you, you have that. And so anyway, uh, Judah goes, I'm not giving my youngest, my last boy, to this woman. She's a black widow, and I, I don't want my son dying. And so he, does, he refuses to give her to him, uh, give uh, him to her or her to him, and uh, he won't do that. And so she ends up, in order to uh, get him to do something, once his wife dies, he, she goes up the road, pretends to be a prostitute, and, uh, and, and then gets pregnant by her own father-in-law. Okay, would you insert that in your genealogy? I, I kind of like to clip that and branch off that family tree. You know, I don't, I don't, I don't know if I want anybody to know that. And uh, and then Judah wants to burn her to death when he finds out that she's she's done this. And then she comes out and goes, "Well, the signet and the staff, whose are these?" And Judah goes, "Oops, I don't think we'll burn her." <laughs> and and all that goes down, and it's just a crazy story right in the middle of starting off with Joseph. And by the way, when you're studying Genesis, you need to know why that crazy story is in between. It's right set. Joseph starts in chapter 37, then suddenly there's this offbeat story of Judah and these, these kids and Tamar. And then right back to Joseph as if 
you, why is chapter 38 there? Somebody must have put it in the wrong spot. And it's not in the wrong spot. Holy Spirit has a message and it has an important point there. So you need to discover that when you're going through. Uh, one of the things that you always learn when you're studying, you're going to find things that are out of place. You will find commentaries who will even say that. We think maybe that was inserted by a later writer because we can't figure out why it's there. Oh, you dumb, dumb. You know, come on. <laughs> the Holy Spirit knows what he's doing, and he's placed it there for a reason. All right, so we have Tamar, a Gentile, a woman who commits adultery, a woman who gets pregnant by her own father-in-law. Stick that in Jesus' genealogy. What's the next woman? Ruth. Is that right? Tamar, and then Ruth. Okay. Um, no, Ruth's not the next woman. Rahab, thank you. I didn't think you. Rahab, Rahab. What? What? What's uh, Rahab's uh, uh, nationality? She's also a Canaanite, and what was she known for? Yeah, Rahab. Rahab. Rahab is a prostitute in Jericho. Stick that in your genealogy. But Rahab is. Of course, one of the few of, of Jericho that saved her and her family. And she ends up, who knew, she ends up marrying a man of Israel and uh, ends up uh, being in the genealogy to Jesus. Jesus put a prostitute in his genealogy? Huh. Who's the next woman? Now you have Ruth. What's Ruth's nationality? Moabite. And the Moabites came from who? <laughs> the incestuous relationship with Lot and his daughters. His daughters made him drunk, and they both have a whole nation by their own father. And the Moabites are so bad that God says, I don't want a Moabite in my, in, in my tabernacle to the tenth generation. I don't want, you know, blah, blah, blah. And, uh, and so here we have a Moabite, a total foreigner, who marries into Israel and uh, becomes then uh, in the lineage to Christ and, in fact, becomes the great-grandmother, great-great-grandmother of King David. Uh, wow. Something else. And then the last woman in the genealogy. Bathsheba. Doesn't even, doesn't even name uh, her. Just says, uh, by the wife of Uriah. The greatest sin that David committed. Something that just absolutely destroyed his life. And, uh, and so we, here we have uh, uh, Bathsheba who was married to who? Uriah the Hittite, <laughs> another Canaanite, <laughs> in Jesus' genealogy. So we not only have Gentiles in the genealogy, we, we, have, we don't have women that are really, you know, what you, what you would call with great backgrounds or great uh, uh, pedigree and things like that. Now, why, why, aren't, why isn't Sarah in the genealogy? You can put women in. Put Sarah. Put Rebecca. Put Leah. Put some of these good gals in the genealogy. Nah, we'll put those in. We're going to put these raunchy women in the genealogy. And Gentiles, be like, you imagine, see, a Jew's reading this. A Jew is reading this. And he's going, right genealogy, but yuck. 
You know, is he going to have anything to do if those women were alive today? Would he have anything to do with them? No way. That Jew's not going to have anything to do with them. Here's like they're in Jesus' genealogy. And in fact, there's many of the Jews that that's their genealogy. <laughs> they also came from David. They also came from Abraham, obviously. So they're like, this is getting me a little creepy here. Now tell me why. Why did, why did God put that in? In Jesus' genealogy. Why'd that come out that way? It's not about the people So what? What is it about Jesus that makes that so important? He's what? Okay. You're on the right track. So what does that mean then for us in the world. It's talking about our salvation, isn't it? Yeah. So I don't care how bad you are. Can you relate to somebody in that genealogy? Well, yeah, you can. (laughs) You thought, but I was really, 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 really bad before I became a Christian. It's okay. Yeah, that's that's who Jesus saves. That's who's in his genealogy. Uh, he's not going to accept you as a he'll accept you as a Gentile. He'll accept you as a great sinner. He he's he's accepted all of these in his genealogy, setting the tone for the mercy of God and the beauty. So even in a genealogy, see it's how it's said. It's not what is said. It's how it goes about. We could just look at that and go, oh well, the whole point of that is to show that Jesus came from David and came from Abraham. That's all I need to know. No, that's not all you need to know. There's more to it than that. Uh, one other question about what would you say the key word is or key phrase in those, in those verses through, uh, through 17 that just keeps being used over and over again? Pardon? Begot. Yeah, begot, if you were reading King James or father of, if you were reading one of the, one of the others. Uh, 39 begats or 39 father ofs. And then conspicuously absent is a begat in between Joseph and Jesus. He gets down to the bottom, and then he says, Jacob, verse 16, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. He sets up the virgin birth, and yet he has used that word over and over again, all the way down, and then suddenly there is nothing between Joseph and Jesus. He's just the husband of Mary through whom comes Jesus. And we're reminded, of course, of Genesis 3.15, the offspring of the woman has arrived to crush the head of the serpent. All of those things just flood into our minds when we read these. This is, uh, in in fact, uh, Andy and I were talking about this briefly as we were driving over here. One of the key things is you don't just read facts. You read reasons the facts were delivered to you. You don't just discover, oh, look at this, like we would do in a Sunday school class with uh, eight-year-olds or something. Well, who, you know, who is here, who is here, who is that, who is this, all the... No, there's a reason they're there, and we always want to look for that reason. There is a message beyond just the facts. God, remember we studied yesterday, facts are, 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 are stupid things until they're brought into connection with some general law. And there's some general law here that we need to see. So that's very important. Consider, for example, the structure of Mark. I mentioned this to you on Sunday. I want to remind you of a, of a couple of things, and I want to show you something. So Mark's account begins very, in a very interesting way. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, 
the Son of God, as it is written by Isaiah the prophet. Mark sets up sets us up in his book by telling us that what he's about to reveal is going to mirror what you read in Isaiah. And, and it opens his message up more. Um, I can't remember. Did I, did I tell you anything about Princess Bride when I was here Sunday? Did I say anything about this? Okay. All right. Uh, I, see, I'm teaching too many, too many different <laughs> situations. And I can't remember if I said this here. Uh, so uh, one of the things you need to remember, here, here you have this, this picture right here. When God, God just gives a little quotation here. You know, he gives a little quotation after that, and that's all he says. When quotations are given, and usually the quotation isn't even a full sentence, he is triggering in our minds what happened in the whole context of where the quote came from. So what's, what is necessary for us to know if we're going to understand the New Testament quotation? The Old Testament context, all of it simple example is uh, like in Romans. He says uh, in Romans 1.17, for in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. And he gives that, the just shall live by faith. You know, like five words there, which comes out of Habakkuk chapter 2 and verse 4, which is half of a verse. And you can't understand it unless you know the whole book of Habakkuk. Guaranteed, you cannot understand that phrase unless you know the whole book of Habakkuk. How many times have you gone back and go, oh, I guess I better read the whole book of Habakkuk in order to understand what this phrase is? No, we don't tend to do that. We just read right over it. Um, what if I said this? Anybody want a peanut? Now, the people who laughed have seen Princess Bride. The people who didn't laugh, the rest of you, you went, huh? That word you're using, I don't think it means what you think it means. <laughs> you didn't see Princess Bride. You're not laughing. God does Princess Bride all the way through the book, all the way through the Bible. He says a little line, and you're supposed to laugh. You're supposed to go, oh, I know all about that. He just inserted that so he didn't have to quote the whole book of Habakkuk. He gave you a picture, and now you can use it in a jillion different contexts. And that's what we do with favorite movies like Princess Bride. We quote little parts of it and are able then to bring it up in unique situations that applies even in other circumstances. And that's what God is doing when he quotes. So you have to know the quote. And you have to know the story in order to get the message. That's really, really important. I want to show you something about Mark, the message that God is giving. If you, if you were just looking at Mark chapter 1. In fact, turn over there. Just take a look at Mark chapter 1. <clears throat> I'll point out a couple of things uh, to you. So uh, Mark 1 and verse 1, uh, 
the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Okay, who's the one crying in the wilderness? Okay, John the Baptist. Uh, the quotation comes out of Isaiah chapter 40. Why is he in the wilderness? If you don't know, the reason you don't know is because you don't know Isaiah. How about that? In Isaiah, way back in chapter 32 of Isaiah, God says, I'm going to destroy this nation, and it's going to become like a wilderness. And it's going to be just a place where wild animals live and where briars and thorns grow up and it'll be just all kind it'll just be a desolate desert. It's just a wilderness, all of that, and that's going to be that way until the Spirit is poured out from on high. And when the Spirit's poured out from on high, the wilderness and the desert will become a fruitful field and life will sprout up everywhere. Then Isaiah 40, he prophesies that his messenger will come and cry out in the wilderness. Then John the Baptist comes, and John the Baptist goes into the wilderness and begins to cry out. Wilderness is a picture of the destitute condition spiritually of the nation. So John purposely goes into a physical wilderness in order to demonstrate and illustrate the, na the condition of the people. And then he says, prepare the way of the Lord. Isaiah had also talked about how God, and Ezekiel did this in a very graphic way, how God had departed from the temple, left the people so that the Babylonians could destroy them. God left. He's gone. And that's the reason you're in this wilderness situation. But now he prophesied also in Isaiah that he's going to return. And that's the beginning of Isaiah 40. And when he returns, it's going to be a fruitful field. It'll no longer be a wilderness, and life will be given. And he will, do you hear the words? Pour, pour out the Spirit. Anybody ever live in California? Here? What a bunch of duds. <laughs> okay, California is not green. <laughs> it's desert. It's wilderness. And when I would go out into the California desert, even though all of Southern California is a desert, when I would go out into the California desert over the coastal mountains and get out in that area where the rainfall is like one or two inches a year at most, it's a desolation. One year, my wife and I were driving about back cross-country from California, and we came up over the mountains and dropped down into the desolate desert, and it was exploding with flowers, as far as you could see. Everything had come to life. A very abnormal monsoon came up from the Baja Gulf and rained on the desert and it produced life. 
course, life was buried in that soil, and God brought it all up and showed it. And I immediately thought of Isaiah. Now, do you understand why God used the phrase, pour out the Spirit? What's the metaphor, pour? Water on a dry land. Wilderness comes like You and I were a wilderness. We were desolate. We were without hope. We were dead. And God poured out life on us. In fact, the word spirit comes from the Hebrew word ruach. It's actually pronounced that way. Ruach. The breath of life. God breathed into Adam the ruach. The breath of life and brought him to life. Now God's breathing in us life through the work of the Holy Spirit. Through the work of Jesus, he brings life to us. Everything you read, folks, has meaning to it. God isn't just going, I think I'll call him the Holy Spirit. (laughs) There is meaning to this. Oh, John just happened to be baptizing in the wilderness. Why is he baptizing? The king's coming. The king's coming. You need to get clean. And get ready for the king. And get ready, get rid of your sins. Take a look down in, I'm, 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 I want to just sit here and study Mark with you. Look down at uh, verse 10. And when he, Jesus, Jesus being baptized, when he came up out of the water, he immediately saw the heavens being torn open. If your Bible doesn't say torn open, then it, it didn't translate literally. Uh, heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on them like a dove. Mark is the only account that says when the heavens opened, the, when the heavens opened, that the heavens were torn open. Now you read that and you go, so, ooh, way back 700 years before Isaiah in Isaiah 63 and 64 pours his heart out to God in, in, in bringing the people to, to, to repeat these words for him. He pours it out to God and he says, God, we are so bad, Abraham and Isaac would not even recognize who we are. That's how bad we are. But you know we're, our, we're your people. And then he pleads with God in chapter 64 and verse 1 of Isaiah, and he says, Tear the heavens open and come down and save us like you did from Egypt and Mount Sinai. Tear the heavens open, Lord, and come down. 700 years later, Jesus comes up out of the water and Mark says he tore the heavens open and the Spirit came down. Man, doesn't that just give you chills? (laughs) That is just, and what God think? I'm coming back. I'm here to save you. I'm bringing you life. Now, there's about 15 other things in between verse 1 and verse 8 that I could have talked about here. But I'm trying to show you everything has pictures. And the way Mark delivered his message was by, by echoing the pictures that Isaiah gave. Isn't that cool? So now you're just like, whoa! You got a whole brand new mansion that you have to explore in the book of Mark, right? That'll only take you about 10 years. That's fine. <laughs> but a lot of fun. 
So these are, the, these are the ideas, these are the things. I'm just giving you pictures so that you can be aware of what to look at. Book of Mark is really powerful with miracles, 22 miracles just in the first eight chapters. And these miracles are mainly discussing the idea of restoration. When you see a healing or when you see a demon cast out, what should you think of? Jesus said it in the book of Mark. But what should you think of? You should think of Jesus defeating Satan. When he heals somebody, who did he just defeat? He defeated Satan. Because Satan's the one that brought sin, and sin brought death, and sickness, and illness. We feel it all the time. We go to God and pray for each other. Help brother so-and-so, sister so-and-so get well. Please, please help them. Satan is doing these things. It's a result of our sin, and we're feeling it, and he's promised life. And in those healings, you know, Jesus didn't step on the earth and go, be healed. (laughs) Everybody was well. No, he chose a few to illustrate what he's doing. And we just read right over it and go, oh, (laughs) he healed somebody. Isn't that cool? No, message, 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 always a message through all of these particular points. From chapter 827 through the end, he's fulfilling Isaiah 52 and 53, God bearing his arm, the arm of the Lord, to come and crush the enemy and bring life then to mankind. So there's just pictures there of Mark's account. Now I'm going to look at some, and this is on your sheet here, we're going to look at some uh, notable types of structure, and it's not that you're necessarily going to memorize these or even, even be able to use the words, but they're going to give you a picture of what you're looking for or what you will spot as you read your Bible. One is just radiation. In other words, it, the, the point radiates out from one particular spot, like a, like a sunburst. Uh, Psalm 148, we, we sing a song from it. Uh, praise the Lord, praise the Lord, over and over again. Praise Him from the heavens, praise Him, praise him ye uh, uh, kings of the earth, every, and praise Him all the way down, begins and ends with praise the Lord, used repeatedly throughout the psalm. It's just bursting forth with that. Psalm 119, somebody tell me what is referenced to 174 times of 170 out of 176 verses in Psalm 119. Yeah, the Word of God. The Word of God is referenced all those times. And what is he doing? He's just hitting all kinds of different ways that the Word of God is valuable and why we should pursue it. 174 different ways that God's Word is beautiful and should be uh, followed. So it's, it's, again, like a sunburst. Sometimes you'll hear, a, you'll hear a preacher do this. You'll hear a preacher take, he's got one point. So you hit it from that angle, that angle, that angle, that angle, so that by the time you're done, boy, I've got that one point. And, and it, it could be anything, like the steadfast love of the Lord, which is over and again repeated throughout uh, the Old Testament. Uh, how about acrostic psalms? Now, if you're not aware, an acrostic psalm is where the first letter, or some text or acrostic, the first letter of each of the lines begins with a corresponding letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Like Psalm 119 is the most intricate of the acrostic psalms or acrostic text. 176 verses, but they're divided into 22 eight-verse sections. 
You don't see this in your English, unfortunately, because it's Hebrew. But each verse begins with the corresponding letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So all first eight verses are Aleph, the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And then it goes to Beth, the next eight verses 9 through 16. And it goes all the way through that way so that you have a complete picture of the Word of God basically from A to Z. Proverbs 31, 10 through 31 is another acrostic uh, text. What's that about, ladies? Yeah, the virtuous woman. All right, so here's the virtuous woman uh, from A to Z. Here's, here's what she looks like in all of, all of these different uh, ways. Lamentations. Now, there's a book you need to know. That is an extremely valuable book. Lamentations like a great orchestra. Oh, it is. I just, I want somebody to put it to, somebody who knows music to put it to music. It is, of course, written after the destruction of Jerusalem. And, Lamenta- and, and Jeremiah is sitting in the middle of the street, dead bodies all around him, children being murdered. It is, it is horrifying. And he sits in the dust and he gives this lament. And each section, each chapter, five chapters, the one place in the Bible the chapter divisions are always right. <laughs> because it, each was a mo- is a movement within the picture. And he moves with just mourning and, and sorrow. And then he, he builds. And each is 22 verses. Each is 22 verses over and over again, using the letters of the alphabet. And then he gets to chapter 3, and he comes to a crescendo, and his mercies are good every morning. And then he falls. And then it, it, he goes back to reality with that little hope in that crescendo, and it comes down. Then the last, the last uh, movement in chapter 5 doesn't even use the alphabet. It's just one-liners, and he falls apart, and it ends. Man, it just takes you to the mountaintop and then down into the valley. And uh, the, the movement through it, the way God does it, uh, accentuates the hurt and the sorrow and the hope. And, and knowing that, you learn so much. Uh, I, I, you want to stop and study Lamentations tonight? I'm going to do this. Uh, just, just absolutely amazing. What you, what you see in these texts. So it's a notable structure. Repetition is another notable thing. One of the things you always want to look at when you're, when you're reading, when you're reading, you're marking, right? Where you're reading, you're marking, you're looking. You're like, oh, this, whoa, that word, is, he keeps using that word. He keep, and so that's when I pull out my yellow pencil, colored pencil. I'm going to yellow each time that word is used. And I go, look at all this. When I see that, what am I automatically thinking? There's got to be a really important theme here. It's got to be a real important message he's getting. He's repeating that word that many times. Like example, we just mentioned 22 miracles in the first eight chapters of Mark, five miracles in, the, in just chapter one. You know what he's doing there by doing all those miracles in, in Mark? The king has come when the king speaks. Everybody listens. Everything he does when he opens his mouth, bam, it happens. Bam, it happens. 
You ever notice he doesn't tell the story about calling Peter, Andrew, James, and John from the fishing business in the book of Mark. He just comes up and he says, and he saw two fishing, and he said, come follow me, and they just dropped everything and followed, as if he had never met them before. Boom! When I say come, you come. And the next statement is, the Jews say, everything he does is with authority. The king has come. Everything he's doing is showing that the king has arrived. Beautiful, beautiful movement through the text. The term for urgency used in the book of Mark 39 times, what is it? Immediately. Immediately. Exactly. Isn't that amazing? It's only used one other time in all the gospel accounts. (laughs) 39 times. What's what's he doing? When the king speaks, immediately. When the king's going to do something, immediately. Always. Power, power, power that is given because the king has arrived. A key word in Leviticus used 95 times. Holy. Holy, that's right. Holy, used 95 times in just 27 chapters. Peter quotes one of the key verses. Be holy, for I am holy. First Peter chapter 1. Key theme in the book. You have to be holy. In fact, in contrast to that, the word unclean used 128 times. What you read about in the book of Leviticus is two main things about holiness. You cannot come before God unless you are holy. If you do, he'll kill you. You can be made holy only by God. He has to make you holy. And then you can come before the Lord. Secondly, you cannot use anything that is common in worship before the Lord. Because if you do, he'll kill you. Nate happened to buy you. You have to use holy things when you serve him, and you have to be holy when you serve him, or he will kill you. Is that a pretty good message for today? You know, sometimes people ask, I don't understand why you don't have instrumental music. Yeah, I don't understand why we don't have Wendy's hamburgers for the Lord's Supper. Because he'll kill you. That's why it isn't holy. It isn't holy. I could give a hundred other reasons, but that is the biggest reason. You don't take what's holy before the Lord, unholy before the Lord. You have to use what's holy. And what's holy is what he's designated. That's what's holy. That's why we don't use Wendy's hamburgers. And that's why we don't use the musical instruments. It's just as simple as that. So I don't really think he would mind. Neither did Nadab and Abihu. Don't tell me about this business. Leviticus is extremely valuable for us today. What do we do when we get to Leviticus? Ah, that's a hard book. I don't know what it means. (laughs) Yeah. There are two narrative sections in Leviticus. Only, I just blew the answer. I was going to ask you, how many narrative sections in the book of Leviticus? There are only two narrative sections in the book of Hebrew, book of Leviticus. You know the first one, just mentioned it, Nadab and Bihu. Boom, they die because they didn't use holy things in worship. There's only one other in chapter 24, a guy blasphemes the Lord. And he must die because he is before the Lord unholy. Boom, he's dead. The two key themes of the book are in the narrative sections. Do we notice it? 
Do we just read over it? Yes, that's what we do. We just read over it. We don't notice that the, there's meaning to God using those narrative sections in the midst of all those detailed rules that we don't like to, to read about. Uh, repetition also. What's the key phrase in the book of Genesis used ten times? This is Jeopardy. You sing the song, hum it. You know. da, da, da. Key phrase used ten times in the book of Genesis? Nobody? Pardon? No, that's used like six, seven times just in the beginning. Pardon? God said, no, that's probably used a whole lot more times. <laughs> no, the phrase that's used in the book of Genesis, these are the generations of, or maybe some of the modern versions, these are the offspring of. These are the generations, ten sections. He divides it up into that. These are the generations of Adam. These are the generations, well, it starts with these generations of heavens and earth. These are the generations of Adam. These are the generations of sons of Adam. These, and he keeps doing that in sections. And what he's saying is, here's the story about this and how that you say, where's that going? Ten times, these are generations of, where's that going? Matthew chapter 1, this is the generation of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. That's where that's going. He's signaling to you. He's bringing you to Christ all the way, all the way through that. Kingdom of Heaven. Which book is that phrase exclusively used in? Matthew. Exactly. Matthew. You're 37 times in the book of Matthew. Why does Mark and Luke only use Kingdom of God and not kingdom of heaven. First, first thing you would, would want to know, right? There's got to be a reason. <laughs> There's got to be a reason you, Jesus, did, Matthew uses kingdom of, of heaven and the others do kingdom of God. I did? Yeah, Matthew's writing the Jews. They're looking for a physical heaven, earthly kingdom. He's going, this is bigger than that. That's exactly right. And he gives many, many parables that are pictures of what the kingdom of heaven is like. Here's another uh, type of structure that you will see. Progression. Every book in the Bible has a typical progression. For example, you would know this. There's a geographical progression in the book of Acts. Where does that geographical pro uh, uh, progression begin? Yeah, how the gospel said, and it starts where? In Jerusalem, right. It starts in Jerusalem, then it goes to where? Judea and Samaria, and then finally to the end of the earth. There's the whole progression of the book. It's a geographical progression, because what Luke is doing is he's showing, here's the progress of the gospel, here's how it went from just Jerusalem to the world, and it's a fulfillment also of prophecy. That's what the prophets would talk about as well. Uh, there's an apostolic progression that's basic, if it's very important. What is that progression? First to Peter. That's right. And then to Paul. Now, the big question is, you know, we, we see the title of Acts. The Acts of the Apostles. Is that a correct title? No. The Acts of Peter and Paul. That would be a correct title. Why? Does he do it that way? He lays before us, and this is another structure picture, but he lays before us the work of Peter and then the work of Paul. 
and he invites us to compare the two works. And when you compare the two works of Peter and Paul, what would you discover? Can you, can you think about that with studying your study of Acts? What would you discover when you look at what Peter does and then you look at what Paul does? Peter's to the Jews, Paul's to the Gentiles. Now, with that knowledge, what's a key thing you discover in comparing the two? They teach the same thing. They do the same miracles. They, they uh, open the same gospel. To, to, everything's the same. He wants to make sure that no Jew says, we had a better apostle than yours. <laughs> no Jew can exalt themselves. He, even, you know, it, it, Peter, it'll say Peter did extraordinary miracles. That even if a shadow of Peter passed by, and it turns over to Paul, he did the same thing. He did extraordinary miracles. They take a handkerchief from him and, and, and go and, and somebody else touch him, boom, they'd be healed. Extraordinary, everything parallel, parallel, parallel. He's bringing everything together for Theophilus so that Theophilus as a Gentile knows that he is going to be an equal part in the kingdom of God. See the bigger picture. Always go up to the 30,000 foot level so that you can see the whole thing that God is doing. Message of Acts. Anyone want to try this? Message of Acts. One way to find a message is what, it is, what does he emphasize in the beginning of the letter and what does he conclude with at the end of the letter that's the same, that bookends the whole letter? Sorry to tell you this, but you can't go to heaven if you don't know this. But That's the first question God's going to ask. Well, let's see. Can you get in here? Do you know that? Restoration of the kingdom. Restoration of the kingdom. Jesus, for 40 days, tells them about the kingdom of God. The next thing that happens, the, the, the apostles say, is it this time you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? You know what we say about that? Dumb apostles. <laughs> they still think it's going to be an earthly kingdom. No, they don't. Jesus does not correct that question. He just simply says it's not for you to know the time. Peter later preaches the restoration of the kingdom in chapter 3 when he says heaven will receive Jesus until the restoring of all things. And Paul ends the book with teaching the kingdom of God. It is the kingdom of God that's being preached from beginning to end. Do you know in the whole thing the church has never preached? Get that. The church has never preached. The church is the result of the preaching because the church has saved people. But church has never preached. We go, I want to convert somebody. You've got to come to the right church. Baloney. You've got to come to the right Savior, and He will add you to the right church. We have messed that up, and it really affects a lot of things we don't have time to talk about tonight. But this is not the right way to preach. Never do you see them preaching the church. The church is in the book of Acts, but it's the result of the gospel being preached. And the church must act holy and worship holy. Yes, all those things are important. But you must start in the right spot. So critically important. Uh, here's another. Progression. Every Bible book progresses from one to another. There's two sections in the book of Exodus. What would you imagine? You can tell me already. You know what the first section in Exodus is all about. What it's about. 
Exodus, that's right. <laughs> Deliverance from the nation, for, uh, for the nation from Egypt. Uh, first part. What's the second part about? Can you? Covenant, and what's a critical part of, as he gets the covenant going, what is the mo- all the chapters are about? And the rest of Exodus, practically. 20 on. He was what? Yeah, but what is all the instructions about? 15 chapters of instructions on tabernacle. That's right. Building the tabernacle. Yeah, those, those are important details there. But look at the picture then. God delivers. And then God dwells among his people and demands worship. I want to dwell among you. And we are going to have this relationship. What's the natural thing to do after God delivers you? Worship the Lord. I am the God who delivered you out of the house of bondage. Now, if you want to maintain this wonderful relationship and I dwell in your midst and protect you from all the countries, build a tabernacle so that I can be in your midst and picturing how that you will one day be in my presence forever. Picture. Beautiful. Uh, Thanks. Message he's bringing us. God is bringing us back into his presence. So very, very cute. Hey, look at this. There's a chart of one of the books of the Old Testament. What book is it? Right. Book of Judges. You notice how everything goes, chuka, 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 chuka. That's, that's the way the judges were. Everything went downhill. Even the judges got worse in their character. Starts with a rose a generation who did not know the Lord, ends with everybody did what was right in their own eyes. Put it in today's language, it starts with uh, just following World War II, and uh, the next generation rose up that did not know the Lord, and today everybody does what's right in their own eyes. <laughs> Mic drop, there it is, that's the nation. It's going to keep happening over and over again. Enjoy. No, we don't enjoy. The last part of Judges are horrifying. Horrifying. And that's what we're beginning to live with in America that I have been preaching and warning about since 1970 with people not raising their children <laughs> correctly. Contrast. Look for contrasts in the Bible. God teaches us by contrasting principles. Like in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul will say, if the dead are not raised, then this. And that would be a foolish conclusion. Then if the dead are not raised, then Jesus wasn't raised. If the dead are not raised, then we're in our sins. If the dead are not raised, this. And he draws contrast uh, between that. Proverbs chapter 12 through 15 is contrasting parables. First line, thus and so, and then the second line, but and contrast. And you see, you see those contrasts. Here's the best one of all to me. I mean, this, this, I learned so much from this. Romans chapter 7 and chapter 8, contrasting chapters. In chapter 7, Paul says, sin dwells in me. What I would to do, I do not do. What I want to do, what what I don't do, I should do. And, you know, and he, woe is me. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And everything is centered around sin dwells in me. Somebody tell me what, what it means for sin to dwell in you. What's Paul mean? 
You're a slave to it. That's exactly right. Sin, one of the key words in Romans 5 down through 7, the key word is reign. What's reigning in your life? Sin is reigning in your life. Sin is on the throne. Sin is conquering you. You are out of control. Sin is in control. Sin is sitting on the throne of your life, and you can't escape it because sin dwells in you. That's his wording. And then in chapter 8, he turns around and says, but you are now no longer in the flesh, meaning flesh control you. Sin is no longer dwelling in you, sin controlling you. Now the Spirit dwells in you. The Spirit is now controlling you. We used to have debates. Well, I watched the debates. I wasn't part of them. And I thought they were all nuts at the time. We used to have debates on whether the Holy Spirit was actually inside your body or not. And they wouldn't have had to have all-day debates if somebody just understood the principle of contrast between Romans 7 and Romans 8. If you can understand what it means for sin to dwell in you, then you can understand what it means for the Spirit to dwell in you. It's talking about what is reigning in your life, what is in control. It's not about the Holy Spirit climbing inside your body. That was not any part of what he was saying. He is saying, now you are controlled by the Spirit. Not in some supernatural way, but because the Spirit has now revealed this and the Word of God is written on your hearts, as the covenant said, and dwelling in you. It's a part of you. So contrast teaches us some very, very beautiful principles that we would not know if we didn't pay attention to context and simply read a Bible verse. As we said Sunday, we are not supposed to be doing. Alternation. Two contrasting or alternating sequential stories laid side by side for us to compare and contrast them. One of my favorite is Luke chapter 1, the infancy narrative of Jesus and of John the Baptist. And you read that and you see God taking these two stories and laying them side by side and saying, compare this, look at this. There's a lot of parallels there, but my favorite is when Elizabeth is told that she's going to have a son in her old age. And what does she do? She hides herself. She goes out in the mountains there and she hides herself. And then six months later, the same angel Gabriel appeals to Mary and says, you're going to have the Savior. And by the way, your cousin Elizabeth is six months along. You know that old lady who's 80 years old? She's having a baby. And he's going to be the forerunner of your baby. And as soon as the angel leaves, Mary jumps up and runs to the hills and finds Elizabeth. And she enters the house and the baby leaps in Elizabeth's womb. And you just see this, this young, young woman. How old is she? 18, 19, 20 years old. And this old woman. And they're the only ones in the whole world that know they carry the babies that will turn history upside down. And you can just see them for three months rejoicing, praising spending that time together. And God says, look at that. Look what I've done. Look what I've done from these simple people. Rome doesn't know about it. Emperor doesn't know about it. Pharisees don't know about it. The Jews don't know about it. But here it is. Here's what I've done. Ah, it's just great. And there's all these parallels like that. 
It's just, uh, it's just such a beautiful picture. Israel and Judah in First and Second Kings. You ever, so First and Second Kings ever driven you nuts? Yeah, it drives me nuts every time I read it. In the meantime, this king over here. And in the meantime, this king over here. In the meantime, this king over here. And he keeps going back and forth between Judah and Israel. And what is he doing? He's doing a sequence there. So that the alternating sequence shows you how Israel becomes more worse. And Judah begins to look like Israel. And more and more until both nations are destroyed. And God brings it together, and that's a big contrast, as we've mentioned before, between First and Second Chronicles, which does not contrast the two and only talks about Judah and only talks about the priesthood and talks about the Messiah uh, coming. One other, pivot. The biblical books and biblical narratives have pivotal points, and you want to notice that pivot where everything turns. On that, We've already talked a little bit about Mark, the pivotal point in chapter 8 when suddenly Jesus says, now I'm going to the cross. Everything was miracle, 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 conquer, 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 all this coming to a pinnacle point, and then boom, I'm going to Jerusalem. The ultimate victory is about to be done. And that's how Mark lays that out. What's the pivotal point in David's life? Yes, absolutely. Second Samuel, you just go, first ten chapters, I mean, David can't lose. David, please, stop. Did you notice the first ten chapters of your life? You are the hero. You can't lose. Everything goes right. And then, boom, Bathsheba. The rest of the book. There isn't any man on the face of the earth could have been more miserable than David and had more bad things happen to him. Everything fell apart. What's the big message? Well, one of them is commit that sin and you will never be the same. You will absolutely destroy yourself. Probably most of us have seen somebody who did that. What a sad, sad thing. It's great, great subtext message, but of course there's a bigger message uh, even beyond that. Uh, so there is that pivotal. What's the pivotal point in Judges? arose another generation that did not know God. They didn't... (coughs) Excuse me. Woke up today with more allergies because the weather got better. Uh, They did not drive out, and uh, and then when they didn't drive out, then they became like the nations there. Biblical point in Genesis. Yeah, chapter 3, sin. Sin, first pivotal point right there. So you have sin and the curses, but there's another pivotal point, chapter 11, 27, with Tira and Abraham and the blessings. Now notice something? Again, another way of seeing big picture. Curses because of sin. Who reverses curses? God. You get to Abraham, and God says, watch this. You know those three curses over there? I'm going to give you three blessings. We're going to reverse the curses. And from that time on, you watch every narrative you read. You will see pictures of the curses and pictures of God reversing the curse. What was Sarah's curse? Barren. What was God's blessing? Boom. Isaac. Rebecca's curse. Barren. God's blessing. Jacob and Esau. Boom. You just keep seeing this. Hannah's curse. Barren. 
God's blessing. Over and over again, you see the battle going on between the offspring of the serpent and the offspring of the woman, and the offspring of the woman will eventually conquer. All the way through the Bible, you're seeing that picture. Here's your final test. What book of the Bible is illustrated by this chart? Couldn't really have stumped you on this. No? You just you just chicken to try and be wrong, is it what you mean? <laughs> hmm? No? Nice try. <laughs> no? Nehemiah? No? Nice try. No, no, no. Okay, start here. When was the temple built? Now, of course, there was a temple built in Ezra's time, but when was the first temple built? What book? What book? Can't hear you. Who built the first temple? Solomon. What book of the Bible was Solomon living in? Second Samuel is the life of David. Then comes Solomon. That would be what book? First Kings. Yay! What book of the Bible was the temple destroyed? You know what to teach this group now, don't you? <laughs> Second Kings. The temple is destroyed at the very end. 2 Kings 25, the book of the Bible that this illustrates is therefore Kings. Because Kings is only one book in the Hebrew. When you break up 1 and 2 Kings, you'll lose the picture. You'll lose the message. That's why you don't stop when you hit the first Kings and go, well, that book's done, now go to second Kings. No, this message is continuing. And now you see the, see the contrast there? Beginning temple is built, end temple is destroyed. Beginning kingdom is united, end they're in Babylonian captivity and they've had division between the nations. And what was the pivotal point? First Kings 12, the pivotal point when Solomon married all those women and God said he would take the nation away from him and he dies in 1 Kings 12 and the nation, nation then divides and everything goes downhill from there again the big picture message shows us the care we have to have and what can trigger generations after being destroyed parents grandparents Everything you do will determine, if life still exists for hundreds of years, it will determine your generations hundreds of years from now. The choices you make will make the difference of things like this. Pretty big picture. All right, get an, get an idea what we're supposed to be looking for?
<laughs> I gave you a half a percent. There's a jillion things God's always looking. So I want you to be able to try to open your eyes and always see what's the message beyond the facts. You've been absolutely great. Love the time with you. And uh, should we just have a closing prayer and do that? Somebody would like to lead a closing prayer for us to the me talking? Volunteers? Great.